I'm Ollie Neal, and you're listening to the Equip Project podcast. The Equip Project is designed to help young people engage with the Christian faith in a thoughtful and reasonable way. Our goal is to help provide clarity and understanding as we seek to tackle many of the cultural and intellectual challenges to Christianity. Our topic in this episode is the cross of Christ. The death of Christ is obviously at the very heart of Christianity. Anyone who knows anything about the Christian faith knows that the cross somehow unlocks all the problems that humans face. Christians don't regard Jesus' death as an embarrassing failure. In fact, they see it as an integral part of God's plan for the universe. But at first sight, it really makes very little sense. How could the death of a man 2,000 years ago achieve anything for young people living in the 21st century? It's not just non-Christians who question the rationality of the cross. Many young Christians have questions too. So I'm really excited to get into this conversation, Jim. Uh, I know you are. I, I, I was sitting in church yesterday when my phone buzzed and I opened up a WhatsApp message from you, which had a big list of questions on this subject. And I looked around and saw you sitting directly behind me. It was very unnerving. <laughs> yeah, I was during a church service, I confess, thinking up questions um, about the cross that I could ask you and that could potentially feature on this podcast. Uh, that is true. I'm maybe a little bit obsessed. I do have a lot of questions uh, about this area. Maybe the best place to start is with this idea that Jesus was punished for our sins. The idea of God punishing anyone is very unpalatable for a lot of people today, and and they they see it as almost barbaric. You're right, and it's not just non-Christians who recoil from that thought. I'm sure everyone listening has heard of that modern Christian anthem, In Christ Alone. It was written by Stuart Townend and Keith Getty. And one of the mainline Protestant denominations in the United States wanted to include this hymn in their new hymn book. But there was one line that they didn't like. It comes uh, from the third verse. This gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save, till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, for every sin on him was led. And the offending line was that one which said, the wrath of God was satisfied. And the editors of the new hymn book wrote to the Gettys, and asked them if they could change that line to, the love of God was magnified. I think that story really uh, just fits in with the general theme of our age. We, We much prefer talking about love than about justice and punishing sin. Our TV screens are filled with people waving placards saying, love not hate. And we've almost got to the point of the idea of punishment um, being a bit like a hate crime in itself. So how do you go about defending the rationality of divine punishment? Okay, I'm going to make two defenses here. And for the first one, let me remind you of the most annoying machine in the universe, uh, the photocopier that used to sit in our church office. Uh, It seemed to sense my presence and jam every print run that I started. And sometimes I became so frustrated with the stupid machine that I was tempted to give it a big kick. Now, the idea of punishing a machine is ridiculous, isn't it? Well, if you believed that you were just a machine, and I came along and talked about God punishing you, you would find the gospel ridiculous. So gospel preachers today must start with this lovely, ennobling truth, the truth that human beings are not just material stuff. We're not machines. We are magnificent moral and spiritual beings. I'm actually making an argument that C.S. Lewis made. He argued that the doctrine of divine punishment is actually a compliment to humanity. God takes us seriously as morally responsible beings. I really like that argument, Jim. So essentially what you're saying there is that God's justice can't be avoided because humans aren't just dumb machines. God, in fact, takes sin seriously because he takes 
man seriously. That's your first argument. That's right. And the second one is to think about how uh, God reacts to sin. The way he reacts to sin will tell us a great deal about his character. So let's imagine for a moment uh, a God who could face sin and say that it didn't matter. Let's imagine that he could just shrug his shoulders and issue some sort of unprincipled pardon to sinners. What sort of a God would that be? A God like that would lose the respect and reverence of every moral being in the universe. Now, let's imagine, hypothetically, of course, that you have a 16-year-old brother uh, who has taken off golf. Right? <laughs> Your parents are pleased that he's engaged in something other than an Xbox or an iPad, but they warn him strictly that he must not practice golf inside the house. Okay, particularly, let's imagine, in a room where they entertain visitors. And we'll imagine in that room they keep an old piece of crystal. It is a beautiful and precious thing, valuable because of its history in your family. Okay, well, it's been raining all week, and you know exactly where my little story is heading. Your 16-year-old sibling chooses to forget all the parental warnings, and soon there is a terrible sound of a piece of crystal being impacted by a beautifully struck golf ball. Now, if you watch your parents run into the room and say, Ah, poor boy, it doesn't matter. It was only a piece of old glass. It meant nothing to us you would be forced to conclude that they didn't value the crystal at all. If they did value it, then what happened really did matter. They might forgive your 16-year-old brother. They might even pay for the crystal piece to be repaired. But the senseless disobedience would be a fact that could not be ignored. That story actually uh, isn't too far from reality in our household gym, actually. <laughs> We've had a, a few instances of, of golf balls sailing three houses down, and then we just we just listen and hear a, an almighty crash at the end. <laughs> but to be fair, the state of Ben's golf is such that it's really safer for him not to have access to golf clubs. <laughs> I think we're going to get a strongly worded letter from an anonymous source. But let, let, okay, so let, let, let me now take a, a much, much darker scenario, okay? Imagine for a moment that years from now, you and Rachel have started a family, okay? And you have the misfortune to have me as a neighbor. Uh, but by this stage, I'm a complete drunk, and I habitually drink and drive. Imagine that I get drunk one evening, get into my car, and kill your five-year-old daughter. How would you feel if God waved an airy hand and said, well, that was most unfortunate? But I'm a forgiving sort of person, so let's all just try to move on. A god like that would be saying that your little girl's life had no value. So the point is this. Our guilt before God is real because the things destroyed by our sin are real and valuable. The idea that God can somehow ignore the fact of sin and disobedience in his universe is absurd. If God looked down at all the pain and hurt caused by sin and said to himself, oh well, it doesn't really matter, he would be saying that his entire universe had no value. And in so doing, he would cease to be God. So the execution, to sum up, the execution of justice can't be avoided for two reasons. First, God treats us as morally responsible agents, not dumb machines. And secondly, if God didn't execute justice, he would be saying that nothing in his universe had any real value. That's a really helpful starting point for our conversation about the cross, Jim, because we can lay this concept of divine justice alongside the concept of divine love. If God was simply a stern, scrupulously fair judge who had no love for his creatures, then, in fact, there would be no need for the cross. Guilty sinners would instead just simply receive their due punishment, and that would be the end of the matter. But the reality is, the Bible makes clear that God loves us and longs to forgive us. So it turns out that forgiveness must be a profound problem for God, would you say? It is. The reason why God is obliged to judge sinners is because he must always remain true to himself. So if he is to forgive us, 
he must do so righteously in a way that doesn't condone our sin. Now here's the problem. The divine attributes of justice and love seem like the parallel tracks of a railway line. No matter how far you travel, the two lines will never meet. But the cross brings about the reconciliation of God's love and his justice. Well, here's a question for you then, Jim, because there are other religions in the world that offer divine forgiveness, but it seems they don't have any need of a cross. Well, Islam is a good example of that thinking. I remember once having a conversation with a a Muslim student about how Allah forgives. And he reminded me of a funny story that the Prophet Muhammad once told. I'm sure the Prophet told it with a, a smile on his face. And it's a story about a Jewish man who lived in a certain city. And this man apparently had committed 99 murders. And having done so, he set out to see if his repentance could ever be accepted. And he came upon a monk and asked him this vital question. The monk said no. Uh, So the man killed the monk, taking the total number of his murders up to 100. He then approached a scholar who wisely deflected the question by instructing him to ask some wise man who lived in a village some distance away. And unfortunately for the murderer, he died on the way to the village. Now, said Muhammad, the angels of mercy came from paradise and the angels of punishment came from hell to claim his soul. The angels of punishment argued that the man had killed 100 human beings. He had done no good works. But the angels of mercy argued that he had been on his way to learn about repentance. So Allah decreed that they were to measure the distance that the man had travelled from his home city and compare it with the distance that he had still to travel to the village. And he said if he was just one cubit closer to where he intended to learn about repentance, he would go to paradise. Then Allah intervenes and causes the earth to shrink by a cubit between the man and the city so that he was found to be just closer to the village and so the angels of mercy took him to paradise. Now, That story clearly demonstrates that Allah is merciful. Of course it does. But it also shows the difference between the Christian and the Islamic understanding of salvation. In Muhammad's story, Allah forgives the man of horrendous sin. But he does so without providing any moral basis for that forgiveness. He forgives because he has the power to forgive. So in Islamic thought, divine forgiveness is a product of power. But the whole point of the Christian gospel is to demonstrate that forgiveness isn't easy for God. He has to reconcile his justice and his love at the same time. I mean, if we think more deeply about that story, even though it was, of course, told in a humorous way, but think of the heartache, the bereavement and the loss in the 99 families who that murderer had robbed of a father, a husband and a son. Can all that pain be ignored by a deity who simply uses his power to forgive? At the cross of Christ, we see God take responsibility for all the pain, the senseless hurt, the damage that sin has brought into our lives. Christ bears the punishment for our sin and allows God to offer us a principled forgiveness. It's the cross which establishes the moral basis for forgiveness. It explains how a God of love can forgive and still be a God of justice. Even if someone bought into your argument that in order for God to forgive us, he needs to reconcile his justice and his love. That still doesn't explain the cross. As a child, I was taught that Jesus acted as our substitute. God poured out his wrath on Jesus instead of directing it on us. And as a result, the moral debt of our sin has been paid. But surely the idea of substitution must be examined closely, because at first sight, it doesn't seem 
all that just for a third party to take the punishment for other people. What good would that do? I, I had a similar upbringing. And when I was a child, I guess I had a sort of mental picture about the cross. I saw three players at the cross. Okay, There was God the Father, there was me, and there was a third party, Jesus. God should have punished me for my sin, but he transferred that punishment onto the third party called Jesus. And although I was too afraid to articulate my doubt, even as a child, I couldn't see what good that did. What good would it do to punish an independent third party? It all seemed a bit mechanical. The great theologian John Stott brilliantly refutes that wrong idea. He says this, When we look at the cross, we see how God overcame the problem of forgiveness. In his great mercy, God purposed to direct the full weight of his righteous wrath, which we deserved, against his very own self in the form of his Son. So in Sunday school, I had been taught that the cross shows us the way of substitution. The notion of substitution is that one person takes the place of another. There can be no forgiveness without substitution. So at the cross, someone took our place as a substitute and provided a way for us to be forgiven. But the key point which I hadn't fully grasped was this. Who was the someone? Remember, in my childish understanding of the cross, I was treating Jesus as a sort of independent third party. But Stott blows that mental picture out of the water. Here's what he says. At the cross... We do not see a drama enacted between three players, the guilty party, the punitive judge, and the innocent victim. We see a drama involving only two players, the guilty party, that was me, and the triune God. The man Christ Jesus who hung on the cross was not an independent third party who was the recipient of some mechanical transfer of guilt and punishment. At the cross, we see the self-substitution of God. Divine love triumphed, because of divine self-substitution. The Father sent the Son, and the Son came. The Father gave the Son, and the Son gave himself. Scripture tells us that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. The will of the Father and the will of the Son coincided in sacrificial love. So at the cross, we do not see some mechanical, legal transaction. We see the self-sacrifice of love, the most personal of all actions. Let's just take a... I've been talking too long here, Ollie, but let's just take a rain check. The first thing we talked about was that the execution of justice can't be avoided. Okay? And then the second thing we're addressing is that God executed that judgment on himself. He placed himself in between us and judgment. And that, Ollie, is the very essence of the quality that we call love. The lover sacrifices himself to protect the beloved. That was really helpful, Jim, and, and particularly that quote from John Stott just really reinforces how important it is to have a, a Trinitarian view of the cross. It knocks the whole notion of, you know, the cosmic child abuse uh, insult on the head. Yeah, I think that's really key, actually. It really does challenge that accusation. I wonder if we could delve just a little deeper into the story of the cross now, and, and if you'd mind answering some of the questions that uh, I've come up with. When you talk of Jesus bearing God's wrath, are you referring to the physical sufferings of Christ, to the flogging and beatings, and the agony of crucifixion itself? I don't really think so. The old preachers used to say that the cross was God's verdict on man and man's verdict on God. So far, all we've been talking about is the first part of that equation. At the cross, God was issuing his just verdict on humanity and directing the sentence onto Christ. But the cross also reveals mankind's verdict on God. 
it reveals the sheer malice of the rebellious human heart. Romans says that we were enemies of God, so when we got him into our hands, we showed what we really thought of him. There's a brilliant moment uh, in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia uh, when the rebellious horde get uh, the great Aslan into their hands. He doesn't resist as they tie his paws and shave off his magnificent mane. He's just like a pussycat, they sneer at him, and then they do him to death. And I think that's a really insightful idea. It is reminding us that the physical sufferings of Christ reveal what the sinful human heart really thinks of God. Yeah, that's a really shocking picture you've painted of, of how, how man would treat God if, if faced with the opportunity. One of the verses that comes to mind um, as I try and think through this issue of, of, of the the suffering, the physical sufferings of Christ, is that verse in Isaiah which says, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. If, if that, to me, that verse seems to be saying that actually the bruising itself uh, was a form of punishment by God. Well, let's just think, first of all, about the word, it, the phrase, it pleased the Lord. It, that certainly doesn't mean that God the Father took pleasure in the agony his son was experiencing. That would be grotesque. Isaiah's language simply means that it was the Lord's will that Christ should suffer. So if I get a letter from Buckingham Palace saying that it pleases Her Majesty the Queen to have an audience with her, it doesn't actually please her at all. The language is simply expressing the royal will. Now, the second point you raised is about the relationship between bearing God's wrath and Christ's physical suffering. And I suppose in one sense, Paul repeatedly argues that the cross is a demonstration of uh, the spiritual realities uh, of the reconciliation of love and justice. And so when Isaiah says he was pierced for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities, he is saying that Christ took the path of the cross. And as we see Christ hanging on the cross, we are having a demonstration of the great spiritual battle that is going on uh, in the heavenlies. So the cross helps us to see and grasp the reality of the pain that Christ was really experiencing in those hours of darkness. It gives us a sense of just how uh, intense that was and how dramatic that was. Scripture tells us that after humanity had done its worst to Christ, then the scene went dark and there were these three hours uh, during which we actually don't read about all that much. What was going on during that time, Jim? Well, you're right that the New Testament, particularly the Gospel records, give very little details about what was going on during the three hours of darkness. But the New Testament often alludes to pictures given for us from the, from the Old Testament. And I believe that those pictures have been given to help us grasp what was going on in the spiritual realm at that time. That's really interesting. What, what pictures are you thinking of? Well, the main one is the Passover, which coincided with the Lord's death. Now, it's really important to understand what went on in Egypt on that fateful Passover night. It wasn't God who struck down the firstborn in every household. It was the avenger, the avenging angel. Now, of course, the avenger was an instrument of God's wrath, but God himself had a different role that night. Isaiah tells us in, in his prophecy that the Lord of hosts was like a hovering bird stretching himself out over the Israelite households. He was placing himself in between his people and judgment. Like a mother bird covering her chicks with her wings, so God hovered over the homes of his people and protected them from his own wrath. 
That's why the Israelites were told to paint blood on the door frames of their homes, some on the left side, some on the right side, some on the, on the lintel, which of course would have dropped down onto the door sill at the bottom. Now, what does that detail tell us? Well, when the Israelites emerged from the shelter of their homes after that terrible night, it would have looked as if their homes had been protected by a crucified man. Now, that picture gives us an insight into Christ's suffering during those three hours of darkness. On the cross, the Son of God was confronted with all the horrors of the fallen world. He was confronted with every ghastly wickedness in all of history, from the murder of Abel to the gas chambers of Auschwitz. And he said, I take responsibility for that. You see, way back in the Garden of Eden, the man called Adam was confronted by his own sin, and he ran away from his moral responsibility. It wasn't me, it was the woman you gave me. But when Christ the second Adam comes. He stands at the head of the human race and says, I take responsibility for that. We sometimes sing a hymn called, Give me a sight, O Saviour, of thy wondrous love to me. And the chorus says this, O make me understand it, help me to take it in, what it meant for thee, the Holy One, to bear away my sin. And the reason that hymn is so insightful is that it reminds us that Christ is the Holy One. Now we're on holy ground here. But we can barely imagine what anguish it caused him to take responsibility for things that would make his pure soul revolt in outrage and horror. And yet scripture says that Christ became sin for us. He assimilated our sin into himself and took responsibility for it. And at the end of those hours of darkness, Colossians tells us the evil powers and authorities had been disarmed. That's a really interesting phrase. You see, Satan is a great accuser. He loves to fling our sins in our faces and say to God, well, what about that? Your own justice demands that my accusations be dealt with. But then Satan turns around and sees that his arsenal of accusations has been emptied. They'd all been hurled at Christ, and so Satan is disarmed. In our episode on hope, we talked about the famous hymn in which one of the lines says, it is well with my soul. The third verse of that hymn says, my sin Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. And then there's the other hymn, uh, which has the, the line, When Satan tempts me to despair, and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there, who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Beautiful, rich words in those hymns, Jim. Finally, Jim, I want to ask a simple question with a, probably quite a complex answer. What happened when Jesus actually died? The Old Testament picture that helps us understand the Son of God's entry into death comes from Jonah chapter 2. And the metaphor that we find there, and also in the Psalms, is the metaphor of drowning. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down, the earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. You see, the scriptures describe Christ as the author of life. So the man Jesus, who is God, full of uncreated life, entered into death's dark prison house with all its horrors and darkness. But death had no hold over this just man. And so God exerted his mighty strength and raised him from the dead. 
Jim, in this episode, you have essentially been defending the doctrine of penal substitution. Is it possible for someone to preach the gospel without preaching that doctrine? We need to be a little bit careful here. Sometimes Christians react against the doctrine of penal substitution uh, for legitimate reasons. Um, perhaps they have been taught a straw man version of the doctrine. Um, I called it the cosmic child abuse um, model uh, earlier in, in, in our conversation. Uh, but I think if we understand the doctrine correctly in its orthodox sense as the self-substitution of God, that straw man can be set aside. The other reason why people can react against the doctrine is that it is presented as an either-or. And of course in Christianity, when it comes to the cross, it's nearly always both and. The cross achieved many things, not just forgiveness, uh, wonderful though that is, but the putting down of evil, um, the, it's the basis of our sanctification and our great journey to becoming sons and daughters of the Most High. And so we have to understand that while it is a core doctrine, it's not. It's a truth, but it is not the whole truth. But to get to your, your question, if someone actively denies the orthodox, pastorally sensitive understanding of penal substitution, and if, if they repeatedly ignore its central place in Christian thought, then I am afraid they are in, in danger. Scripture is just packed full of verses that teach the truth that Christ bore the wrath of God. And you simply can't answer the big questions of life without it. How can I be saved? How can my conscience be cleansed? People who deny penal substitution have no answer to those questions. Thanks, Jim. I think this episode has been really helpful in addressing some of my questions around the cross. Um, I'm sure some of you guys listening have questions off the back of this episode, and we'd love to hear those questions. We'd love to address those questions in future episodes. But for now, we want to say a big thank you to all of you, and we look forward to spending time with you again in episode 14. If you have enjoyed this episode, we'd love you to share it with friends and family or post a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you do have a follow-up question or, or a suggestion for a topic we could discuss, in future episodes, please do email us at theequipproject.gmail.com or send us a message via Instagram. <laughs>